Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Please view our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome back to part two of Habits and Holiness. In the last lecture, we saw that there's an essential structure, there's a shape to our repetitive behaviors. And this shape has both elements that relate to our life that others can see, that we can measure, but there's also going to be something that changes ourselves. And so looking at the first slide, we recall that there are three essential elements. There's the A, which is the antecedent or a trigger, there's B, which is the behavior, C, which is the consequent or reward for that behavior. But we notice that the habit loop tends to some kind of end. It tends to shape us in some way, and it's going to, in the long run, shape our very lives. And so we gave the example, for instance, of somebody who starts with, say, a trigger of watching TV. And then the behavior was, we said, well, maybe eating too much. And the consequence was feeling a little satisfied, and so it tended to make the person to repeat this action. And yet we noticed, too, that just simply analyzing our behaviors as if some exterior thing is causing us to do something is insufficient. That when we ask ourselves, well, why am I overeating, for instance, that the questions that arise are going to be deeper than simply, oh, I happen to be sitting in front of a television. And so looking at slide number two, questions that arise about our very actions. We can see, for instance, what kind of behaviors do I perform regularly? What do other people say that I do often? Sometimes it's going to be a friend or a spouse who helps you to see yourself better than you're willing to notice on your own. Perhaps you may ask yourself, how often do I perform these actions? What are the underlying dispositions that urge me to perform these habitual behaviors? So, for instance, we talked about the, the fact that perhaps loneliness can encourage a person or urge a person to eat too much because that seems to fill a void in their soul. And then finally, well, what significantly affects my habitual action? What triggers your action? Well, on the one hand, perhaps it's sitting in front of TV, but perhaps it's deeper than that. 
And there's this sense of longing for the presence of another person. So what can prevent you from doing that action? Well, this is ultimately what helps you to overcome the habits that you want to changing your life is knowing what prevents you from doing it, but also what are the deeper underlying causes for performing that action at all? When we ask ourselves these questions, then we start to notice that often our habits are outside of our own control. These are things that in the end require the help of somebody else. I mentioned a spouse or a friend who can help you to know yourself, but ultimately God is the one who knows you better than you know yourself, better than anyone else can know you. Because God sees into your heart. God knows your intentions. And he can see past all of the illusions, all the misunderstandings, all of the, well, little ways we hide ourselves. And so then he's going to help us to know ourselves. And we ended our talk last week by talking about that it's important to ask God, sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, ask him to help you to see yourself for who you really are. And when you ask Christ to do that, he will give you that information very slowly, gently. And sometimes he'll make something happen in your life that sort of wakes you up to a behavior that you've been ignoring for a while, but other people have noticed for quite a bit. And so there, that is going to lead us to ask the questions about these deeper questions of why do I do it? Here's our slide number four. Perhaps we ask ourselves, why does this habit feel fulfilling? What is the good I'm aiming at when I perform the habitual behavior? Because every behavior we perform, even if it's one that's sinful, is ultimately related to some good. You're desiring something good, but perhaps in a disordered way or to a disordered amount, or it's just disordered for you, even though it might be just fine for somebody else. How does this habit relate to my other goals? Does overeating really help me, or is it contrary to my health and therefore to the proper care I ought to have for my body? What kind of person will this habit make me become? Does this habit reinforce my virtue? Does it reinforce my vice? And ultimately, does this habit help me get to heaven? And so this is where we are now, is asking ourselves these questions and realizing that perhaps life feels out of our control. Because our exterior behaviors shape our interior life, well, we are more inclined to do some things because we perceive them as rewarding. And so this habit loop and the end that it tends to helps us to see how ultimately we shape our own character. These little things we do throughout the day starts to make us into one kind of person or another. And so our interior life then, the way that we look inside, helps us then to notice that, well, this is going to exteriorize itself. And so there's a twofold movement. There's the exterior thing we do, and it shapes us interiorly. But then there's the interior desires that we have, and these are going to manifest themselves from time to time. How do we respond to the situation where we feel like we can't control our habits? Where do we go with this? Some people feel as if, well, their emotions control their lives. They are impulsive, perhaps, or they have an ongoing mood that's lasted for years. How do we change that? Well, I'll give you a little story, and this will help to illustrate the various approaches that we can have to our feelings that our habits dominate our lives. I was in Cincinnati, and it was summer, and 
I was younger, I was on a run. And Cincinnati in the summertime can be quite humid. And so the heavy, humid air sort of stifled my lungs like a damp woolen blanket. Someone had warned me as I was going along this trail to watch out for a dog around the bend. I thought, I don't see any dog. And as I was jogging along, and then I saw it, (laughs) that dog. It was kind of like a grizzly bear, but less friendly. It looked like a mix between, you know, a Doberman pincher and something you might encounter in the woods ready to eat you. So I began to hustle. This dog wasn't chained down. It was on a person's lawn. And so I I thought, maybe I'll skirt by the lawn. The dog, I realized, had one of these shock collars on. There's an invisible fence. And so I thought, well, the fence will keep it in until it didn't. The dog yelps as it jumps over the invisible fence and starts to chase me. So I thought really quickly, and I jumped onto the lawn. So now the dog had to get shocked to chase me back. (laughs) The dog chases me back. It yelps again. And now its muzzles are nearly at my heel. And then I thought, well, what can I do? I jumped back off of the lawn. And now the dog was wary. It knew that it would get shocked. And so it's slavering. It wants to eat me, I'm sure. And then it decided that it would give up. With the drool foaming from its mouth, it tore after me, but I tore away from it. And eventually it didn't catch me. Now, the the reason why I bring up this example is not because I'm not a dog lover, but because often in the Middle Ages, they would portray emotions like these dogs. And they would say that our emotions are sort of like an animal that is inside of us. Plato described our emotions as two different horses. And one has more of a sense of being of desire, and the other is more of a sense of aggression. And he would say that there's you're sort of like the charioteer, that your rational part is trying to control these two horses as they're moving together. Now, the question is, when you have this snarling pup in your life, and you feel these emotions trying to pull you away from the right path, how should you respond to them? And here we're going to turn to our fifth slide, because we have a few different options. You can ignore them, you can cage them, you can uncage them, or you can hurt them. Let's go through each one of these in detail. So first, we can say that uh, one way to ignore you know, these powerful emotions in our lives is, well, just to ignore it. Some people just simply run away from their own feelings. They don't know how to deal with an emotional difficulty. You feel like you're triggered by your spouse or a friend or a situation, and you start to feel that fear or anger or attraction is overwhelming you. And so some people just, well, they try to deny it. I'm going to neglect it. They, they treat their emotions like a plant. If I don't water it, it might die, and that'll be just fine. But of course, some emotions, like some animals, will run up and catch you unless you're careful. And so Aquinas, when he describes our relation to emotion, he says that human perfection means the perfection of the whole person. You can't simply ignore your emotions and be satisfied in life. The stoic option never works. You can try to ignore it for a while, turn your back on it, but ultimately, your True spiritual perfection means learning how to deal with your emotions in a healthy way. If you distance yourself from your lower powers, these monstrous and bestial aspects of ourselves will fight for dominance, often on a subconscious level. 
and they might even win. So if we can't ignore them, other people think, well, the best thing to do is to cage our emotions, lock up that dangerous animal. And of course, this, this idea has more popularity with people who, well, are seemingly more rational. People who have this you know, strong, assertive sense of themselves will be particularly attracted to the idea of putting their emotions into a box, trying to control these things, lock them up and starve them to death. Here, too, this is somewhat stoic because these ancient Romans argued in favor of eradicating all of the emotions. For them, the greater dignity was self-control. You're supposed to avoid dangers running in the wild. Of course, the chief problem with this kind of approach is that emotions are part of ourselves. Similar to the avoidance technique, the idea of caging our lower life, our emotions and imagination, our feelings and our intuitions, is that in the long run, well, this neglected zoo animal won't die. The poor thing might get weaker, perhaps unruly, but because it's a part of us, it endures. And so the results of trying to cage your emotions for too long and not ask yourself, why do I have these feelings? Why do I have this habitual response to these situations in my life? If you don't know how to deal with it and you try to cage it, you often get the result of what they call athenia, this flat gray world devoid of emotional flavor and color, and often it can lead to a kind of depression. It's little surprise that after a person feels that her imagination, her hope, her confidence and anger has been caged, she desires to set them free. And so another option that people suggest is uncaging your emotions. Let them free, let them run wherever they will. This is a theme in romantic poetry. You see this in works such as Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. And this is something that dystopian novels often suggest. When they tell of a foreboding future of authoritarian governments that try to stifle the sharp flavor of true passions and replace it with chemical substitutes, they have this idea that, well, the way to escape this governmental tyranny is let the emotions run free. Aldous Huxley describes this in his Brave New World. There's this controller, a governmental bureaucrat who controls people, who says that, well, ultimately, civilization is social stability. And so then the tragic heroic character in Brave New World says, I don't want comfort. I don't want God. I want poetry and danger. I want freedom. I want goodness. I want sin. And this is what we often see in modern depictions in movies and novels is that people realize that caging the emotion is going to harm you. And so they think that uncaging the emotion is the only proper response. We see a very similar kind of uh, outlay in George Orwell's 1984, as if the only response to a tyranny that crushes the individual is to let the individual, as it were, run with no consequences whatsoever. Now, the insight here is that emotion is a part of human nature, and emotion does need to be expressed in some way. But we would say, as Catholics, they should be healthy emotions. And the way they're expressed ought to be in concert with the rest of our life, in accordance with the virtue of prudence, and in light of charity and justice for our neighbor. And so these narratives fail by placing passion above reason. 
They mix good with evil, and the result is moral emptiness. So another option that people try in thinking about these habitual emotions that rack and whack them is when this uncaged emotion starts to bite, well, they just try to smack it around. And often this is the case for people who are, well, they're more spiritually in touch with God. One of the, I think, effects of a delicate conscience is this notion of scrupulosity, where people start to tell themselves that they're evil and they're wicked and they can never be good, almost as if that's the proper response to the disorder. But of course, we know that this isn't the way that we can help an animal. There's a woman named Temple Grandin, and she's an autistic expert in animal behavior and emotions. And she illustrates this issue vividly. She recounts how a person had a pet lion and um, they shipped it on an airplane, you know, taking it from where it was found in Africa, bringing it to another country. She said that um, someone thought that while on the airplane, that lion might like to have a pillow for the trip, the way that people do. So they gave him one, but the lion ate it and it died. She says, the point is, don't be anthropomorphic. It's dangerous to the animal. So here we shouldn't attribute thoughts to our emotions, even if they have some kind of purpose. We realize that the habit loop does have an end, but sometimes what we need to do is bring the thought that we have to the habit. Rather than assuming that the habit just has its own life, well, we can shape it by our own thoughts. And so sometimes there may be occasions that we need to fight against a particular emotion or fight against one of our habits to put up resistance to something that harms us. But ultimately, just as we can't fully train a dog with shock therapy, neither can we fully habituate ourselves to the good simply by harming ourselves. You will no more have healthy emotions by whipping them than you'll get good behavior from a dog just by spanking it. We know that that's not very effective. Beating a beast or using some severe punishment doesn't change its nature. It's never going to be rational. And likewise, hurting ourselves in an immoderate way, and I mean this aside from just penance, but doing so in a way that starts to deny our true nature, well, this ultimately becomes a torture to oneself. You become a prisoner to your passions in a new way. You, you are cast down by the weight of sadness, perhaps depressed by the sting of your blind emotions. So even Nietzsche got it right this one time when he warned, Whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he doesn't become a monster. So there's one more option, though. If we're not going to ignore our emotions, if we're not going to cage them or uncage them or hurt them, what we need to do is tame them. This is the last, the best option for dealing with our emotions and our dangerous habits. But what does it mean to tame the emotions? Well, in a phrase, it means to habituate them to right reasons, good influence with the help of God. To habituate them to right reasons, influence with the help of God. Remember that habit is this interior quality that shapes us. And it's this interior quality of our soul that gives us this urge to perform some behavior. When a habit is in accord with our nature, and when it's accord with reality as it exists outside of us, that habit is good and it perfects us. But when the habit is against our nature and when it doesn't respect the reality that we 
encounter, then it starts to harm us and to undermine our nature. And in the long run, it will be destructive. Now, we also have to recall that the highest human habits are those which exist in that which makes us most human, that is, in the intellect and the will. In order to tame our habits and in order to help us to approach our emotional habits in the right way, we have to focus then on the habits of the mind and the habits of the will. So first, let's consider the intellect, the mind. Reason governs the interior senses and the emotions according to their proper laws. That is according to, well, their nature, just as parents ought to govern their children as their children. They shouldn't expect the, ch the child to be an adult. And so just as a good parent will respect a child's own developmental process and realize that, you know, an immature child, one who's two or three, is quite different from a child of 10. So likewise, reason will come to recognize when emotions are disordered and when they need a little more encouraging help. The more that reason guides and shapes these lower powers that we have, our emotions, our imagination, our intuitional judgment, then the more easily they actually become habituated to the right end that reason sets before them. Now, we know that the primary object of the mind, that which the mind is made to grasp, is truth. When our mind grasps truth, and when it does so regularly, and when we contemplate and behold the truth, whether that's through reading of sacred scripture, or it's listening to a sermon, whether it's simply being in a beautiful space that reflects the glory of God, when we behold the truth, our mind becomes habituated to the truth. As it were, it becomes stamped, just like a piece of metal can become a stamped coin with the head of the sovereign. So likewise, our soul becomes stamped with the very truth of God. And so the intellect has this quality that the more we live in the truth, the stronger our mind becomes. A truth-shaped mind is more easily sifting through rumor. It can more easily reject falsehood. It can more easily discover reality. And so the habit of grasping the truth quickly and easily, skillfully and joyfully, is the perfection of your mind. The more you tell the truth, the more you love the truth, the more you live in the truth, the more you are an honest person with others and with yourself. And so, of course, the contrary also holds. Falsehood and fantasy weaken the mind. The more somebody lives in their imagination, the more they tell little so-called white lies, really they're all black, but the more they say these things, the more they tend to wander, darkened in a lost maze of misshapen mirrors. As someone gazes into this black hole of unreality, it actually destabilizes their intellect, and that makes it much harder for their emotions to be rightly ordered. Like a man turned to stone when they looked at Medusa, the mind that habitually fixes itself on lies becomes hardened to the splendor of reality. The more you tell lies, even little ones, the more you shape yourself to become, well, a liar, a manipulator, one who lives in falsehood. And you become somebody who is dishonest, who lies not only to others, but also to yourself. And so because a person who lives in this world of unreality, well, they become more and more habituated to disordered nature. It's more difficult for them to live in accordance with the desires that God gave them. 
And so the selfishness of character tends to result in wickedness of action. Now let's think about the will, because likewise, there's a similar dynamic. The will is focused on the good. The more that you choose what is good, the more that you choose what your intellect judges to be the right thing to do, then the more your will becomes stronger. You become more dynamic, more stable, more excellent in your choices. And likewise, when the will rejects what is evil and shuns the corruption of immorality, when you make a strong stand for what is good, even when it's difficult, well, then you become a lover of the good and goodness becomes a part of your own character. And so it becomes something like a gardener who chases away fruit-eating birds to make his cherry tree flourish more abundantly. And on the other hand, fake goods disguised as real goods, well, they're kind of like drugs to the body. At first, they bring pleasure, but in the long run, they're going to destroy even the very power that accepted them in the first place. Have you ever seen pictures of people before they started, say, using methamphetamines and then afterwards? It's astonishing. They start to lose their teeth, they lose their hair, their face grows old. Why? Well, because the very drugs that they used and they enjoyed start to destroy the very capacity to even enjoy those drugs. And so this is exactly what it's like when we choose evil, is when we start to hug evil to ourselves, we have that little cherished sin that we won't give away. When there's this habit that we say, well, that's just who I am. That's just how I am. That's who I am. God made me this way. God made you that way? Perhaps you made you that way. The more that someone does this and fosters addiction in their life, then the more, well, they become weak and petty, and eventually they even start to hate what is beneficial. This is where Tolkien's depiction of Gollum in The Lord of the Rings is so perceptive of a person who is attached to a seemingly small thing, but ultimately is disordered for his life. You see, someone who had more virtue could more easily let it go. But the golem creature, the one who becomes smaller and shriveled in his own mind and thinking, he's less dignified and he's less of what he was than he was before. And so likewise, when our desires are not in accord with good, then we start to pervert our appetites. Our emotions no longer obey us the way they would if we were pure and virtuous, if we lived in the light of Christ. And so they start to destroy this harmonious balance that we have. And so we can say that these bad habits, any bad habit that's sinful, it becomes kind of like a cancer that ultimately destroys the body from the inside out. Wow. So if this is the result of the intellect and the will, the question is, well, how do we get our intellect and our will to be fixed on the true and the good? In a word, we have to focus on God. Christ is the primordial exemplar of goodness, and he is especially that which we see as our example and the help to become good. He possesses within himself the fullness of divinity, and he brings to us the fullness of divine grace. And so the saints, well, they're like stars in the heaven, and Christ is like the sun. He brings warmth and light to all of us. And sometimes when it's dark, well, the saints will help us to see our way forward. And so we can say then that by asking for this light of Christ and by requesting the intercession of the saints, 
then very slowly we can start to see what it's like to grow and to become habituated to the divine good. One of the beauties of the saints is that there are, well, so many of them like stars in the sky. And just as St. Paul says, star differs from star in, in brilliance and glory. So likewise, the different saints show us the different paths by which one can reach God. Some saints were sinners and became holy. Some saints were hardly sinners at all. Some saints were married. Some were religious. Some were secular priests and so on. We don't have time to go through all of our wonderful friends, but I'll just quote one who his example of loving the saints helped him to develop heroic habits. I'm thinking of St. Anthony Mary Claret, not very well known in the English-speaking world. But in his time, in the 1800s in Spain, he was kind of like an itinerant Padre Pio. He performed miracles of healing. He could read souls in confession. He had, blessed, uh, uh, he had visions of the Blessed Virgin Mary and of future events. He traveled thousands of miles on foot to preach. He endured cold and hunger. He fasted. People tried to kill him, and he survived. And here's what he said, how he became an apostle of Christ. St. Anthony, Anthony Mary Claret says this, I frequently read the lives of the saints who were distinguished for their zeal in saving souls, and I felt the good effect of it. In the course of meditating on the lives and works of these saints, I used to feel such a burning within me that I couldn't sit still. I had to get up and run from one place to another, preaching continually. I can't describe what I felt within me. Nothing tired me. I wasn't terrified at the awful calumnies being leveled against me. I wasn't afraid of the harshest persecutions. Everything was sweet to me, so long as I could win souls for Jesus Christ and bring them away from hell. What a beautiful example, then, for us to find saints that will help us to know the kind of habits that we need to develop. And the saints more like you in your state of life, wherever that is, that may be the saint that's most helpful to you. So I'm going to lay that as the general foundation. And now I want to go a little more deeply into the particular habits that will help to perfect your intellect and your will, namely developing your faith and your charity, keeping in mind that the saints provide us the general example. And now we'll go into this specific question into those particular habits. Faith. Faith is the doorway by which we receive all of the other graces. At baptism, it's faith that brings us to assent firmly and to believe absolutely in what God has said. This is why the godparents and the parents of the child have to repeat the creed. When the child is going to receive this influx of grace into his life, when water is poured upon his head and the words are said, he receives sanctifying grace whereby his soul is united to God, and he also receives the principle of faith. You see, faith reveals our final goal. Faith teaches us the substance of what we don't see now. It shows us what's necessary for living rightly. By uniting the intellect to God, to the mind of Christ, faith then provides our own mind as we grow from child to adult. It provides us with this divine light by which we can see all things the way God sees them. And so this is why Aquinas says that faith precedes all other good habits in their fullness, and it's the door to holiness. Lord, increase our faith. 
After a person receives faith, then in principle, he nevertheless needs to make acts of faith throughout his life. The child first says the words of the creed, and then the child comes to understand the words of the creed. And so our faith then, possessed, can grow over time. We can come to more intensely believe those truths, and we can also come to, as it were, intensify our own adherence to the truths. And here we'll turn to the next slide. When you are faithful to the truth, and you're faithful to the truth that you know, you start to make acts of ordinary faith, such as saying the creed in mass, such as telling people that you know, yes, I'm Christian, or doing some act that manifests your faith, such as praying the Holy Rosary. When you make these ordinary acts of faith, then you are led to eventually be prepared to make a ha an act of heroic faith. Perhaps there's a point where you're afraid you can be fired for professing your faith in Christ, or perhaps there's going to be some consequence with your family by saying, yes, I believe that we should go to mass, or I do believe what the church teaches about marriage or about the sanctity of life from beginning to end. And so when you make these acts of heroic faith, that makes you even more faithful to the truth. And so you can see then that, that this habit loop exists not only on the natural level, which we already saw, it exists on this supernatural level. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Christ shows us that this fidelity to the truth prepares the soul and it increases our ordinary acts of faith so that we can make these heroic acts. And then we can then teach Catholic truth and be a witness to it, even in trying circumstances. Now, faith, of course, is going to be dead without charity. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we increase in charity? And this, too, has the example of the habit loop. And so when Aquinas explains the nature of charity, he gives the example that becomes picked up in other um, later spiritual traditions by comparing faith and charity operating together as fire acting upon wood. And this is sometimes understood as these three ages of the spiritual life. And here we'll turn to slide number seven. In the first stage, which is called purification, fire acts upon green wood by heating it up and expelling all interior moisture. Through this purified process, the wood becomes, as it were, purged or purified of this water. It becomes first black, like charcoal, similar to sometimes how a person seems to become worse in the first stages of spiritual life as he realizes his imperfections. But during this stage, it's important to know that charity as fire will purify you, how we have to cooperate with ascetical practices, and how these start to, as it were, mark the escape of this pent-up sin within us, much as we might sigh at the pain of being detached from our disordered love for worldly things. Next, fire sets light to wood. Just as wood begins to give off a faint light on its own once it's set aflame, so in this illuminative stage, the soul becomes greater with light from God, and it begins to faintly shine forth to others. Once some of the obstacles of your charity have been cleared away by purification, then you want to focus on the active virtues. You want to cultivate justice and prudence in such a way that can help you accomplish the duties of your state of life. Because the flame remains rather small in this stage, you need to be careful to 
tend the flame to ensure that it receives just enough fuel to remain alight, but don't go overboard and try then to you know, stay up for six nights in a row in an unsleeping vigil before the Blessed Sacrament. Often people who do these kinds of actions before they're ready will end up exhausting themselves and they're snuffing out the charity that they have. But if you're faithful to this stage of illumination, then you can move on to the third stage, whereby the fire transforms wood fully into flame so that only a blaze remains. And this is those who have been transformed by charity to be dissolved with Christ. And here human nature remains, although it's in an elevated state, such that you radiate light and heat of God's love. You seem to be another Christ. In this stage, the gifts of the Holy Spirit become more clearly manifest in your life. You start to experience this union with God all throughout your day, whatever you happen to be doing. And so we can see, though, that just as the habit loop operates on the level of natural habits, on the level of faith, so likewise, in charity, the more that you perform right penance, the more you are illuminated by God, and the more you are in union with him through charity. And these stages continue until death. Ultimately, the good habits that you have stand from your close love of God. Friendship with God and friendship with God's friends, the saints, will help you lead yourself to virtue and that's because you are letting God lead you there first. Ultimately, according to the order of being, God is the most knowable and loving person, three persons in one. And so by knowing God and by loving him, you come to know yourself, you love yourself properly, and then you come to know and love your neighbor. And so this starts to have this overflowing effect on the rest of your habits, whereby your emotions become ordered. Your exterior actions become calmer. They become more suffuse with the divine light of grace. And your interactions with your neighbor have that touch of charity, whereby without having to say a thing, they can see that you're manifesting your love of Christ in your way of interacting with them. It's hard. Just as wood becomes, well, darker and it pops and sizzles in its first stages of fire, well, likewise, often when we begin to develop good habits, well, it feels a little painful. And that's okay. The fact that it feels uncomfortable isn't a sign that God isn't working. Sometimes it's just the opposite. John Henry Newman says that religion is weariness to the worldly person. And so this is why we have to ask God to change our hearts, change our desires, help us to grow in love of him to, as it were, put off the old man, as St. Paul says, and put on Christ. When we have this habitual readiness to change with God's grace, this habitual readiness to flourish and to grow as he wants, then we won't be afraid of this act of pruning, as we can see in our final stage. Good habits feel bad at first, but Christ says that when he prunes us, it's so that we can bear more fruit. This habit, the readiness to flourish and to be pruned by God, when activated by God's grace, will incline you to desire change and trust in God's goodness so that you can say with St. Paul, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Father Ezra. That was marvelous. And it looks like you went for about 40 minutes, but there was an hour and a half of material in there. I know that people are going to be going back and reviewing these. And actually, before we go into Q&A, if you would permit me, because I have your slides here, if you would permit me maybe a couple of questions just on some of these images that you chose, because they're so rich. Let me go back to one of these. There we go. That's the one I'm looking for. What are you signifying with the dotted line between union and purification? You had the same thing in your faith loop. And then my second question would be, as you were talking about this, it makes it sound like these aren't just stages the way that somebody like St. Teresa of Avila would talk about, but that this is a, a looped action that you're actually going through them you know, many times from purification, illumination to union and back around and around. Is that kind of what is behind this image? Yeah. So essentially, even St. Teresa of Avila, she would agree with Garigou Lagrange and um, St. Bonaventure. They all talk about three, you know, these three stages. And, and what they insist on is that they're, they're both chronological stages in the sense of as you grow more mature, you do great, gain certain graces whereby you go from purification to illumination. That's absolutely true. However, you never leave behind the purification stage. And um, sometimes people have a misunderstanding. They think, oh, well, I performed you know, so much asceticism in the past, and now I'm done with that. Now I'm at the illuminative stage, and so penance is over with, and now I can just focus on trying to achieve this, this new level. And, and that's misunderstanding because ultimately the saints never stopped performing penance in their life. There was never a stage in which they said, oh, I'm I'm fully purified. They would often quote the, the proverb that says, even the just man falls seven times a day. And what they understood that to mean was that they would perform perhaps venial sins from time to time inadvertently, you know, not on purpose. And so, so this is something from which you continually have to be purified. I think seeing it as a loop is is perhaps more helpful because often people are like, oh, I've, you know, when am I going to enter the illuminative stage? I've been I've been in the purification stage for five years. And um, you say, well, in, in a sense, you never leave it behind. What you do is you grow more and then you return to that stage, but with this greater growth. It, another way to put it, there's this beautiful author, uh, Blessed Conchita. And um, she has this teeny little book called The Seasons of the Soul. The Seasons of the Soul. It's maybe 50, 60 pages. And, and she describes these stages as, she says, just as the year goes around in a circle, but you have different stages, she says, this is your spiritual life. And each year, though, that tree grows, even though it's at winter right now, and this is like the penance stage. And there's another stage in which it's fruitful, like spring. That's like the illuminative stage. She says the unitive stage is something like summer and harvest, where now it's fully blooming. You collect the flowers, she says, and then it goes into winter again. Maybe you need more penance for one reason or another. And she says, but, it, but the tree is always growing. And so this is, this is the idea of seeing it both as stages, but also as a loop. That is fantastic. Wow. And, and wonderful parallels obviously come to mind with the liturgical year and that we're all in this season of pruning right here in Lent leading up to, uh, to the, the Easter springtime. That's fantastic. Well, it's just my, my first little bit there. What was the, what's the difference between the dotted line between those two stages of the loop? Yeah. So, so the dotted line just implies that it's not a flat loop where see every habit goes deeper. It's more like it's a spiral. 
And so it goes higher and higher as you ascend in virtue, or it goes lower and lower as you descend in vice. And so the dotted line implies that our habits are always growing or shrinking. And so it's it's not just like, oh, I'm just doing the same thing over and over again. It's either I'm I'm making acts of love more intensely toward God, or I'm becoming a little lukewarm. And so so the dotted line just implies a, a kind of spiral nature. Thank you. What a fantastic image. All right, let's start with this question from Melanie. She asks, perhaps you touched on this and I miss it, but isn't desire and or intent of utmost importance in this habit loop of faith? So many people do do ordinary acts of faith, yet never proceed to extraordinary or heroic acts of faith uh, or the purified love for others that you spoke of. Yes. So the way that St. Thomas Aquinas explains it is he says growth, growth in a habit either happens what he calls uh, extensively in terms of the number of things that we do, or it can grow intensively by affecting our soul more deeply. So for in- instance, you know, when, uh, when we say the, the creed, you can say the creed many, many times, but it may not actually affect you intensively. And this is where I think the question is is going, is that in order to increase our habits in a very significant way, like in a meaningful way, we have to always do them with greater love. And so when you say the creed, you don't just say, oh, like, I'm going to say the creed 10 times. (laughs) Um, What you want to do is to say the creed with a lot of understanding, with a lot of love, and you ponder and you think, um, you know, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. And you're like, oh, I'm so, I, I love the Father so much. Thank you for being my Father. And then you go on to the next phrase, and then you thank God, and you and you contemplate all of those truths. And that intensification is much more important than the simple number of times you do it. So absolutely, this idea of desire or of, of attention is absolutely crucial to developing habits in an intensive manner. And that's ultimately what makes the difference to our spiritual life. That's wonderful. And that, that makes me think, I mean, that's one of the primary motivations behind us at the ICC for offering programs like this is, you know, to give you the formation so that the next time you come around to it, you have something more to work with and be intentional about like that. That's, that's beautiful. We'll take a question here on screen from John. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself so you can ask your question. Father, uh, your talk was so elegant, so beautiful, so impactful. Thank you very much. Um, but I do want to, I'm kind of a practical person with an engineering background, and the theory that you presented here is just so pure and beautiful. I'm thinking about what I think about most people think about, and that's what's going on in the world in the Ukraine. My initial response was to think that we should just go ahead and bomb, you know, get that. Then my next thought is, well, wait a minute. We can't do that. You know, I think I've gone through the habit, cage, ignore, uncage, hurt. Then I think, should we tame them with prayers? Yeah, we should pray for Russia. They're the enemy. We got to pray for them. But then I think, they're not going to stop. Talk to what I just said. To me, that's important. How can, what should we think about what's going on in Ukraine? Russia and the world. Well, I think the chief principle here in terms of like our own interior response to these upsetting events is the prayer that I often encourage people to pray is God, give them mercy. 
God, give them mercy. But if they cannot accept your mercy, give them justice. Okay, so mercy has to be the first recourse. God is merciful. And the primary way God shows love to us is by being merciful, by being forgiving, changing people's hearts so they desire what's good. But sometimes people refuse that mercy. And it's like Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, where it says that his heart was hardened. And so then God showed the Egyptians justice because they were unwilling themselves to receive the mercy of God, and they didn't show it to the Israelites. So we, we always have to pray for mercy, meaning, and think about what is the best for people who are harming others, who are you know, performing evil actions. The best thing for them is to convert. Somebody who's, who's say, preaching something false, or somebody who's you know, harming other people physically or spiritually or some, some way, the best thing for that evil person is that they change and they do what's good. Now, some people will not change because they're not open to the mercy of God. And so that's where you say, God, if they reject your mercy, show them justice. So I, so I think that both of those in tandem will help us to have the right ordered desire. Thank you, Father. This next question coming in here. Catholic psychologist Dr. Conrad Barris talks a lot about healing your emotions uh, that have come to be at odds with each other. It reminds me of what you're saying about caging them. Um, do you have any tips for sort of an examination of conscience for our emotions? Yeah, I would say going back to those two slides that we had on the object and then the end, that those kinds of questions, asking ourselves, first, what am I feeling? What do other people say I do in my emotions? That's very, very helpful because often we, we're not as aware of our own emotional responses to things and other people can help us. And, and so you ask yourself, what is the objective situation? How often do I feel these emotions? What elicits these emotions? And then the next is, why do I feel this? Why does this give me a sense of satisfaction? What is it in my life that has brought me to this place where I, I feel these emotions a lot? And then ask yourself, well, is this ordered or disordered? So objectively, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And then, then you try to make some kind of ethical evaluation of that and then try to ask God's grace into transforming your emotions if they are disordered in one way or another. But again, I think Augustine, he's the one who said, God, change my love. Teach me to love what is good. And by doing that, that's going to transform the rest of your emotions, as it were, from the top down. Thank you. Let's take another question here on screen from uh, Georgie. Go ahead, Georgie. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the very beautiful. When you were talking about the triple way of perfection, you mentioned right penance. Can you dig deeper a little bit into what you mean by right penance? Yeah. So Annie and I actually talked about this a little bit on her show, how, you know, sometimes we can have mixed motives when we're doing penance during Lent. Oh, I'm fasting and, uh, you know, I hope to lose weight. Or people will like perform some action that's painful just so they have like stronger self-will. Like, oh, I'm going to put a rock in my shoe and that will like teach me how to have like a, you know, stronger resistance to pain. And you're like, well, you can do that and, and not believe in Christ at all. You know, you can just be, you know, some uh, Roman warrior who, who like you know, slashes yourself in order to be ready for battle. So those things aren't right penance. Right penance is, first of all, motivated by love of God. Second of all, it's proportionate to what does the church ask, right? So we're, we're performing, you know, what the church requires of us. But then third, it's going to be also proportionate to your particular state. 
that maybe me as a religious, I'm going to perform some penances that are appropriate to me as a Dominican to according our traditions, what is necessary for my work and, you know, teaching and preaching and so on. Whereas maybe, you know, in your condition, if you perform similar penances, like it wouldn't be helpful. <laughs> and, um, and so, so the idea of proportion is, is taking into consideration like your, where you are in life. And this is why the church also says, you know, if, if a penance is going to seriously harm you, you shouldn't do it. There's a great example of the life of um, Blessed Henry Suso, where he loved Jesus so much in the name of Jesus, he carved into his flesh with a knife the name of Jesus. And Jesus appears to him and says, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> so that was not right penance. <laughs> Let's take one more question here that it comes in anonymously. This person asks, what about saints like Mother Teresa, who had years of dryness? How, uh, how did the loops apply in a case like this? Well, it's, it's very interesting because on the one hand, Mother Teresa describes how her spiritual state was without emotional joy. And this is actually the case, too, for uh, St. Therese. A lot of people don't know this, but if you read the life of St. Therese and her diaries very carefully, and then if you read St. Therese's conversations toward the end of her life that were recorded by her sisters, she says at one point that she received no consolation no consolation from God once she made her act of oblation. And so what that means is that she's not feeling any kind of emotional satisfaction from performing, you know, her love of God, of receiving Holy Communion. So there's zero emotional affectivity. Nevertheless, there is a spiritual joy. And Mother Teresa and St. Therese both described that. And, and, and I think the best way to think about that is similar to when Jesus was on the cross is emotionally, of course, he's in severe pain. His physical, you know, whole body is, is just screaming out in this unendurable agony. And yet his spirit helps the body to endure and he's still experiencing union with the father. And so, so you can have these two different levels operating simultaneously. And obviously this is unnatural. Right. Like in heaven, the, the, the saints both feel emotional joy, like once you have the resurrected body and they feel spiritual joy. This is Our Lady and Jesus right now. So the loop can still operate. But sometimes what happens is that God allows a person to as they're being purified, the purification is that is that stage that they never leave, even though they you know, so like you can say that in a way the purification stage remains and then they become higher and higher in illumination and in union. So it's still operating, but in a quite different way than it is for, for other kinds of saints. For other saints, they kind of feel more these seasons. They have, you know, a few very difficult months or years, and then they have, you know, months or years of joy and spiritual consolation. Uh, sometimes the loop is a little bit, a little bit closer. In fact, St. John of the Cross describes this too. He says, for some people, because they're active, like when they're active apostles, they're not as contemplative. He says, sometimes God will give them consolations. Because if they endured the dark night of the soul continually, then they couldn't perform any action on behalf of their neighbor. So, so that their loop would be a little smaller. Now, in the case of Mother Teresa, even though she was active, as it were, it's like it took a long time <laughs> to get back to that spiritual joy. So for each of us, the length of the loop and, and how we experience that journey is going to be according to our own graces and our cooperation with them. 
Thank you so much, Father, for all your careful preparation and uh, intention uh, that you brought to this lecture, your careful study, and everything that you were able to share with us over the last couple of Saturdays. Father, I would ask if you could please close our session in prayer today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Saint Joseph, pray for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.